Thank you again, Good. Good to be back with you again this Sunday, this Wednesday. Today and the next uh, three Sundays, God willing, continue our series of Bible snapshots in the New Testament. And this morning I wish to draw your attention to the little book of Jude. We have had a look at Philemon and 2nd and 3rd John and now we're going to move into Jude. And like other snapshot letters in the New Testament, which are often ignored because of their size, Jude also is often overlooked as it sits in the shadow of that mighty book, Revelation, right next door. But many observant Christians will know this letter by its thematic verse in verse 3. It's only got one chapter. And that verse says, and you will recall it as I read it, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And many of you will recall that. And so when you think of Jude, you'll sort of rush straight to that verse. And then you will also remember Jude and recall Jude for the wonderful benediction that we often use here and you often hear uh, quoted and said at the end of church services. And I'll let you read that in your own time. It's in verse 24 and 25, the last two verses. But there is a whole lot more packed into this power pack weather that needs, I believe, our careful attention. The church father, Oregon, he wrote about this letter and said this, Jude wrote an epistle, tiny in the extreme, but yet full of powerful words and heavenly grace. And may I also say that if there ever was a day that the church needs to hear what Jude has to say is today. We live in a day where the church is busy. It seems to be busy on compromising truth, the truth of God's word. It seems to be busy in tolerating other belief systems and even busy at accommodating blatant error. And in the mix of all this error and compromising and tolerating, the church is affected by it. While at the same time we are called to protect the very truth, and yet we see it attacked, we see it belittled, and in the mix of all that, the very truth that God wants people to know is lost in the mix of all this stuff. So really, this letter, if you want to have a big picture, I haven't put a title for our message this morning, this letter can be called, and rightly called, it's a call to arms for the Christian. It's a call for Christians to make a stand and fight for the true faith as recorded in the Word of God. In other words, as we look at the book of Jude, we can see in the book of Jude what a Christian's duty is. But there is another reason, a more personal reason, that I wish to look in some detail at this book this morning and over 
the next three Sundays. Because over the next three Sundays up, this one will be my last opportunity to teach you as your pastor teacher. And so this brings a more personal reason. You see, I want to make sure, even to the point of repetition, if I need to, I want to make sure that you have got some of these fundamental truths that we see in the book of Judah. I want to make sure that you have got them down. My prayer is that they'll be indelibly imprinted on your mind by the Spirit of God and that you will be bolstered by that and encouraged and strengthened in the faith. I want to make sure that you understand some of these clear doctrines that we see here so that I can leave here with a clear conscience. Knowing that I have made it clear, especially the way of salvation, and how we are called to live godly lives as hostile against God as the world is. How we're called to live godly lives where rampant error is making inroads to the church. I want to leave with a clear conscience knowing that you know what your duty as a believer is. And so Jude covers all these basics, not all the fundamentals, but he, he covers them in his little letter truths of Christianity, the true gospel, the true redemptive story. He covers all these. And so over these four Sundays, we'll have the opportunity to study the entirety of this little book of Jude in some detail. And as we think about Jude, it's a unique book in many ways. It was written by Jude, starters, who was a half-brother of Jesus, our Saviour. It was probably written also to a congregation of mainly Jewish Christians and we gain that from the terminology and the, and the, and the wording and the imagery that Jude uses in this book. And so these mainly Jewish converts to Christianity, they were struggling in their faith, struggling spiritually as error and ungodliness all around them made its way into the church. Nothing changes, right? This is why Jude was writing to these original readers. And this is why this little letter is relevant right down through time and to this very day. And so this week I want to briefly look at Jude's introduction and over the next three weeks, God willing, we will get into the content of the letter proper. So let us read you need not turn to it because I have um, really got up with a play and put it up on the screen because it's such a small text that we're going to be looking at today and it's the first two verses of Jude and it says this Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the call beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. When I look at scripture and study it, even for my own personal devotions, I often ask myself questions in relation to the text that I'm reading and looking at. (laughs) 
But this morning, I want to ask you some questions. Some pertinent questions that are relative to the small text of Scripture that we have before us. And so I want you to look with me for a few moments at these two verses and we zero in on these three particular things. Firstly, our identity as Christians. Secondly, God's salvation graces that we have received as Christians. And thirdly, God's blessing that we ought to yearn for as Christians. And, and just to break that down a little bit further and make it a little bit more, can I say, relative and personal and challenging, I want to arrange my message based on, on these two verses with these three questions in mind. How do we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, our Saviour? Number one. Number two, how does God identify with us as his people? And thirdly, what does every believer need and ought to want? Okay, let's have a look at the first question. How do we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, our Saviour? We see this in the first part of verse 1. You know, a common struggle of people today is seen in their yearning for identity. I don't think there's ever been a day like that. There might have been, but it seems to impress itself upon me more than ever as I see people looking and trying to find out and going to great lengths to find out who they are in this big world. It's a typical worldview question, by the way. Who I am in this world? Who am I in this world? And they seek answers to these worldview questions. And many people would go to great lengths to find the roots. You know, you know, have your family heritage. You know, people want to find their tribal roots. And it seems to be in order to discover a sense of belonging. People have this ingrained DNA we all have it, that we need to belong to someone or something. And so this identity seeking that comes because primarily, as we think of it generally speaking, because sin has blinded mankind to who will really belong to us. We belong to our Creator God. We belong to God Himself. And so because sin has blinded that from people's eyes, people still have this ingrained yearning to belong and have an, to have an identity in something or someone People look elsewhere and they'll go all sorts of places and all sorts of lengths to find a Paseo identity. The search for identity is often satisfied with a temporary sense of longing and purpose for who they are in the world. And I say that again, temporary. But what about believers in Jesus Christ? What and who are we to identify with according to this introduction by Junior. We see the answer in the first few words of verse 1. Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Primarily, this is Jude's way of introducing himself to his readers. But we know that all scripture is inspired by God. It's not the words of man, just his own thoughts. These are words, inspired words, and so they carry a lot of spiritual and uh, weight that God intends. And so he, Jude wants his readers to know who he is and who he belongs to before he gets right down to the meaty matter of his epistle, of his letter. But in this intro, we see clearly how Jude views himself in relation to his Saviour. 
and, uh, and his understanding of who he is. In other words, we see something of who he identifies himself to be, who his identity is. And can I suggest that from Jude's example, we can learn a lot about our identity as Christians as well. As you might know, Jude was a very common name at the time. Jude is the English form of the Hebrew um, Judah and the Greek form of Judas. There's a number of Judases in the New Testament. That's the Greek form. And as we... But this man, he was a very common name, and he identifies himself also in a remarkable way. How does he do that? He identifies himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, or a Jewos, a slave. That's what that means. And um, this man had some standing. He was a leader and had some standing in the Jerusalem assembly. Uh, he was also a, a brother of James and a half-brother of Jesus Christ, as we've mentioned. We know that Jesus Christ had no earthly father, but he did have an earthly mother because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit of God, and so that's why he was a half-brother, because Mary also, the mother of Jesus, also bore James and here a Jew. And, um, and plus others. And so, as I was thinking about this, if you were a half-brother of Jesus and someone who had apostolic connections, wouldn't you really want to put it out there to give you some extra clout or some standing? I'm thinking we would. At least we might drop some names. Maybe like this. I remember growing up with Jesus and my brother James, the apostle, and so forth. Maybe Jude could have started it like that, but he never. It's a bit like some pastors I see on Facebook, you know. I, I kind of question, I don't judge them, but I question why they're doing that. They seem to take great delight in taking photos with celebrity pastors and celebrity people. And uh, I met with such and such, and I met with these big notes. Why do they do that, you know? Um, I, I kind of struggle with myself, but I'll just leave that with them. And, um, but not Jude. Not Jude. The only name he drops was a despised name, especially in the Greco-Roman world of the time. He uses the word bond slave or Judas. He identifies himself as Jude, the slave of Jesus Christ, the bond slave of Jesus Christ. You see, this man had no identity crisis. He had no low self-esteem. His identity and understanding of who he was in the world was all wrapped up in his master, Jesus Christ. He was so in love with him. He was not like the gang member who parades his patch. You know, you see that right down the bike? By the way, I haven't got a patch. Like the gang member who parades his pack. Or like the woman I saw the other day, I was talking to my wife about it. Covered in tattoos. It seemed to be from head to foot. Tattoos all over the place. What on earth is this poor woman trying to do? I, I come to the conclusion that she's obviously got a real identity crisis. And she's trying to be someone or link herself or portray herself to be someone that she's not. So she seeks her identity. Well, not with Jude. Jude was indeed the Lord's half-brother. But in humility, he submits 
to his master and, and he puts his whole life at the disposal of Jesus Christ. Paul himself even calls Jude and James the brothers of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 9 5. But Jude himself does not go there. He says rather, I am Jude, the slave of Jesus, the Messiah, and the brother of James. Now folks, there is a good lesson in this for us. Because here we see in Jude the kind of humility and servanthood that every Christian ought to practice in the assembly and willingly be identified. Here is the question. Do you consider yourself a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ and manifest that identity to fellow believers in and around you in serving Him? In other words, it's your patch. Is your invisible tattoo, can we put it that way? Ah, this person who is a real servant. Because look what they do. Look what they are. Look how they conduct themselves. But there's more. Here Jude acknowledges Jesus the Messiah, the Lord of his life. And yet even as a servant to Jesus, you know what there is something about Jude? He's free. He's free in that servanthood. Many people think when you become a Christian, you're bound, right? By all these rules and regulations. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. That's rubbish. That's rubbish. Before you're a Christian, the only thing you're free to do, you're free to sin. When you become a Christian, you are free to live for the glory of God, and that's much better. And sin becomes abhorrent. You can choose to sin. Us Christians are not perfect. We do sin, but it's by choice. We go against the new nature that God has put in us and we rebel against what God has put in us and we, we deliberately step outside the freedom that Christ has given us and we find ourselves with sin again. But not you. He was free. You see, Christ says, believers who are devoted to Christ, it's only in this similar relation will we know true fear of freedom. Because our identity is in Him. Only as devoted followers, slaves, or servants of Christ will we discover freedom of, of who we are truly meant to be by God in this world. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? All of us want to know who am I meant to be and what is my purpose in life and in living. These are, are worldly questions that everyone asks in different ways or other. And it's no different for the Christian. But for the Christian who has been set free, he has got his identity and his purpose in life set before him. He's free in that. And the borders are large. And God gives us great choice to do and to go and to be where he wants us to be. You see, folks, if you're not slaves of Jesus Christ, you'll be slaves of someone else. That's all there is to it. Slaves of something else. And even as Christians, we need to be careful. You can be slaves of, of, of legalism. You can be slaves of, of, of whole heaps of things within the Christian church. So I ask again, who do you see yourself to be? And how do you identify yourself in a relationship to Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Is he really your master and Lord? Or is he merely, and I say this carefully, a sugar daddy saviour for when you might need him. 
He was called what? He was personally called out of the Arab Chaldees, out of paganism, into a pathway that pathway that would would fulfil the redemptive purposes of God in the world. Ah, here we are. Look at that. And so, um, so God's personal call of Abraham, by the way, was not merely for Abraham's personal benefit. Do you realise that? Of course you do. We think of Abraham, we think of a bigger picture than just Abraham himself, right? I wonder if when you think of yourself and God, you think of a bigger picture than yourself and God. You should do. Abraham was personally called, and yes, he was personally saved, I'm going to use that language, but it was for the bigger redemptive story of God and for the purposes of God. And that's exactly the same with you and me. When he calls us and he saves us, it's not only for our own personal salvation, it's for a bigger picture and a bigger story. A lot of Christians don't get that. They have their puny way of thinking and they just think of, oh, I'm saved, I'm saved from hell, and so that's it. Well, there it is. You read Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17, and you'll see the big story, the big <coughs> picture that God has for Abraham. And so when Jude cites believers as the call, he is reminding us that we have been called not only for our own personal salvation, but into God's redemptive story which is much, much bigger than us. Folks, we've been called and we are identified as the called of God. <coughs> Remember, this is God's work. This is God's work. This is not a mark that we as God's people kind of place upon ourselves. It's not something time in history where, okay, it all depends on me what I do, and so I earmark myself, as it were, and, and, then, and then, so then God accepts me. No, no, this is God's work. God has taken the initiative. God, God's call on us is not rooted in anything that he saw in us, or in any faith decision that we might make down the corridors of time. It's not based on that. Rather, his call is purely motivated by his matchless grace for the purposes of bringing him great glory and pleasure. You read Ephesians 1, you cannot help us get that You see, God on his own initiative and by his grace alone sovereignly marked his people out one by one because man could never take the initiative over God. In other words, sinners can never approach God until God starts and begins to draw them to himself. That's what John chapter 6 tells us, right? This is what John chapter 6 says. No man comes to the Father unless the Father, what? Draws him. So being called of God is like a divine summons, which is, by the way, always effective. Always affected. I remember once I had an elder when I was a young fellow, teenager, might be a little bit older. And an elder came to the elder of the church and he and he said to me, Jeff, I want you to come with me this Saturday afternoon and um, and we're going to go visit some believers of our local church. I want you to come along with me. 
hang out with me and come with me. Like a full Timothy kind of relationship with me. At the time I didn't value that, but looking back I do now. Anyway, at the time I offered no argument, even though I wanted to. I offered no excuse, even though I wanted to. Of why I couldn't go. Why was that? Why didn't I protest? Why didn't I say that? Because I knew that that was not an invitation that this brother rang up and asked me of and told me that he would meet me at my house at that time. I knew it wasn't an invitation. It was a summons. Okay? It was a summons. It was like a call that I <laughs> I had to, and, and you deep down I wanted to obey. Well, this is what God's call on our lives is like, folks. <coughs> From God's pure understanding and perspective, can we say, his call of, to his elect began in eternity, and from people's perspective, our perspective, it began when we come to personal faith in Jesus Christ. It is not an invitation, it is a summons which we are obedient to through faith. We are the call. We are now God's servants in the world, employed to bring about his greater redemptive purposes. Like Jesus, you know, when he went out to preach, what did he say? Come, come, please come. I'm here, come, come. No, no, no. He commanded them to repent. He said, Repent, he converted. Repent, and turn from his sin. It was a summons. Let us all be encouraged with this. What a wonderful blessing there is. No need for any Christian to have self esteem or identity problems. They're the call of God. But there is another blessing that God identifies his people with and we see that we are the beloved in God the Father. Do you know what this means? Beloved in God the Father? It's easy to read and okay, just think here we're not going. This actual term is only found once and here in the New Testament. Beloved of God the Father. And it carries the idea of God's eternal covenant love for his people. And for those of us who talk Hebrew will remember the word chesed. That carries this idea. In other words, it tells us that God chose to save believers. Why? Because he loved them. That's why. This is about how God the Father from eternity past chose <coughs> on his own initiative, uninfluenced by anything but his love, to save us. He chose to eternally set his love upon certain sinners to redeem them. Romans 5 verse 8 But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And for good measure we need to understand that this covenant love is an eternal love. It never fades or shifts like our love does toward another and because of circumstance. Why is this? Because God is love. He is pure love. Remember how Jesus prayed in John chapter 17? You all know this prayer. He prayed for his disciples and for all those, including ourselves here this morning, who are born again. He prayed for all those who would believe in his word. He prays that in verse 20. Then he prayed in verse 26. This is what he said. I made known to them your name. He's speaking to his Father in heaven. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Wow. That is one amazing statement. 
It really, really is. In other words, words, Jesus prayed that through believing the gospel, all disciples present to him on that occasion and future right to this day will be eternally and completely loved by God. We can ask more, God, Father, how much do you love me? And his answer would be, as much and in exactly the same way as I love my beloved son. Folks, it does not get better than that, honestly. Let us us revel in this wonderful truth for a moment. Every true believer is loved by God in the same measure as God God loves his son. You ever thought about that? We have a call, a co-sharers in God's infinite, eternal love with Christ. God loves us with the same love as he loves his son. You know, no wonder John wrote in his first epistle in chapter 3, verse 1, See how great a love the Father hath bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. No wonder he wrote that. What a wonderful encouragement to be loved in God the Father. Wonderful encouragement to all of us, but especially to those who are struggling in their faith and, and are downhearted and, and are discouraged because of something. What a wonderful truth that is. You know, this really brings to life that well-known promise that we often read and we often probably know it by heart in Romans 8, 38, 39. I am convinced, the writer says Paul, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing, listen to this, will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the Lord for that. This is who we are, folks. The true Christian is the called, and the true Christian is the beloved of God in the Bible. Really. We see here that God marks us with the fact that we are kept. To those who are called, beloved and loved the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This really means and talks about God's ongoing, continuing action in our lives and all around us and about us. He protects us. He protects and guards and keeps his people so that what? So that we'll feel good? No, no. So that we will be presented before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach in Christ before him in heaven. Colossians 1 22. That's what he's protecting us from and for. Nothing will interrupt that either, by the way, folks. In other words, as God's salvific call to those he has chosen is always effective, so too is his ongoing protection and presentation of us in the glory. That's a wonderful encouragement, isn't it? So you who are saved here this morning and born again can know with surety and assurance that God will present you holy and blameless before the Father. He'll protect you. God has marked us out as those who will be eternally secure. Jesus speaks, by the way, of this eternal protection in John 10, verse 27, 29. This is what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life to them, 
and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Talk about a double security. Dear people, the call, the love of God and the Father, we're also the kept ones for eternity, safe by the Savior's power. This is why believers persevere, by the way. We often speak of the perseverance of the saints. A true believer will persevere. It's not as if the person kind of pulls himself up by the bootstraps and says, okay, I'm going to do what I need to do and, uh, and live holy lives for God. It's not if that's all that it takes. This here is the perseverance of the saints is God's protection at work in the life of the believer. They persevere, they're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to reveal in the last time. First Peter 1 5. They persevere. What? By faith? You think of the Old Testament saints. They persevered. What? Abraham looked for a city whose builder and make was God. He persevered. You read the whole chapter of Old Testament saints. He persevered, persevered. Yet some of them fell, and some of them had some dodgy happenings in their life. But they had changed hearts and they persevered, they persevered, they persevered. That's God's protection. God gives them the empowerment and the ability and the longing and the love to persevere for God. Paul himself revels in this kept identity, Mark, and that he perseveres in grace, grace and faith. And he says it in 2 Timothy 1 12. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and am convinced that he is able to guard, there's the word guard, protect, what I have entrusted to him until that day. See, Paul knew that he was kept by God. Paul is saying he is confident that he will be kept by the power of God, by the power of Christ. John Calvin once put it this way, at any moment, Satan might snatch us a hundred times over into his ready clutches. Were we not safe in the protection of Christ? And Jude is asking you to bask in these graces of God for a moment. Satan may snatch you at any time, a hundred times over into his ready clutches, but rest assured you are safe in the protection of Christ. You are called, you are loved, and you are kept. This surely needs to change our impact, our whole perspective on life, our whole view of who we are in this world and our purpose for living life. And then finally, what does every believer need in order to want? In these early verses of Jude's letter, he launches into this wonderful benediction. Imagine that. He gives this benediction before he's even started the letter. Awesome, right? The threefold blessing here that we see in verse 2 describes or pronounces what Christians really want. And these three blessings are what every Christian ought to long for. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. That's what verse 2 says. 
Mercy, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. Here Jesus is speaking, by the way, of God's mercy to us. He's speaking of God's peace to us. He's speaking of God's love to us. The mercy and peace part of this blessing was a very common way <coughs> of Jewish greeting. But Jude does something different here. He adds love to it to emphasize the love of Christ for them. Because remember, these Jewish believers were struggling, like some of us can really struggle spiritually. And so he adds this love blessing as well. But also we see something interesting in this blessing. It's not added blessing. It's not like a second blessing. We don't believe in second blessing. Scripture never teaches us a second blessing. We, the moment the person comes to Christ, we receive all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians tells us that. No such thing as a second blessing. We don't sort of come from here, start here, and then go to the next stage. No, no. And so this is not this here either. Even though he, he, he says this is not an addition, it's multiplication. In other words, may these blessings continue to increase no matter what the circumstances you are in or ever will be. May they increase, may they grow. First have a look at God's blessing of multiplied mercy. This here is not about salvation either, by the way. It's referring to the goodness of God in times of need. Have you ever been there? Shoot oh, your head. Lord, I have needy times. We need God's mercy every day, right? Absolutely we need it every day. When we sin, when we selfishly try to do life in our own strength, and it turns to casting, we need God's mercy by the bucket list. I know. You know what? And there is ample supply of God's mercy at His throne of grace. According to Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let me just read that book, uh, verse. You will well, well know this verse. It says this. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. He's writing to believers here. This is believers. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in times of need. There is ample supply of God's mercy in the throne of grace. So Jude says, may mercy be multiplied. They were struggling. Some were getting hooked up and ungodly living that was being promoted in their time and dabbling with stuff they shouldn't. Now really questioning who they were and so Jude points to the throne of grace so that they can find mercy. I wonder if we as believers understand that. Jordan brings us up here this morning and he gives us opportunity to get our hearts right with God because we want to worship Him rightly in spirit and in truth. And he invites us and gives us opportunity to bow our heads and come to God's throne of grace and say, Lord, forgive me and, 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 and for whatever's happened during the week and wrong attitudes, wrong words, so that I can worship you aright and in a right spirit. Come to the throne of grace. I've also seen the church good praise, may God's peace be multiplied to you. Folks, there is nothing like the inner peace of God and knowing that your sins are forgiven and nothing will separate you from the love of God. 
Nothing like that. This peace is all about knowing and experiencing the absolute and complete settledness, if that is a word, settledness of being God's friend and being secure in Him. I find so many Christians are insecure these days. They're insecure. They don't know where they are. They think they kind of slip into the kingdom and slip out again and they've got to get back in again and there's no surety, there's no assurance and, and, and all I put is because they don't know the word of God. They may have snippets here and there and hear someone say something from here and there and they grab all of that and, but they have no security. There's nothing like having the peace of God and having that peace multiplied and increasing and growing every day. Remember when Jesus spoke to his disciples in the upper room in John 14? By the way, the disciples in the next 72 hours were about to hit one of the most catastrophic times of their lives. This is what Jesus said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Also, in other words, those men who go through those difficult times and some of them felt, remember? They all forsook them and fled when the, when the bat ran and when the soldiers came. They all took off and, and Peter himself denied the Lord three times. But Jesus says, peace. We all know that they had that peace. That peace came multiplied as they considered in Things would have happened. So this is a tremendous blessing. We need this peace to serve one another and to serve the world which is hostile against us. I wonder if you have this peace. Because if you're not a Christian, if you're not a born-again believer, you will not have this peace that God's speaking about through Judea. You'll be clutching at this and clutching at that and, and, and maybe even clutching at religion, but you will not have this inner peace that God gives, knowing that we are in Christ for time and time. Trust you will have. And so please make inquiry in heaven. Um, and finally, Jude pronounces the blessing of God's love on us as well. May love be multiplied to you. Not our love to God. This is not about our love to God. It's not about our love to one another or to our neighbors. No, 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 no. But this is God's love to us. But, the, but haven't we already got that love? Haven't we experienced that love? Don't we already know about that love when Jesus Christ died on the cross? Uh, isn't that settled and a done deal? Yes, it is when it comes to salvation. But we live on, right? We're salt and light in this hostile world and, and we're pulled about from pillar to post. We're persecuted but not cast down. And it's difficult. Well, then the thing to have multiplied to us is the abundance of God's love that He originally, when we were saved, He poured out within our hearts, Romans 5, 5, with the Holy Spirit given us. But sometimes that love, even for the Lord, grows cold, right? It doesn't mean shame on me, but it grows cold. And so I need more of God's love. And you know how we're going to get that? It's not through some mystical experience. It's not going to be through some whatever. 
You're going to be have that love multiplied to you as you get down and pray and as you read the word of God. <coughs> May his love increase and touch our lives so that we can touch the lives of others. You know how God's love works? Yes, God's love comes to us through the scriptures. But God's representatives on this world, as I said, the salvation thing is bigger than just you and me. The multiplied love in your life needs to be seen and manifested <coughs> in the lives of others. Let it touch the lives. You see, Paul, Jude was a bondservant. And his love affected and touched the lives of others. May that be our case. <coughs> we need to ask ourselves a question in closing. Are we desiring these things? Or are there other blessings? <coughs> temporary blessings. And we all know about those, right? We've got our house, we've got our car. We've got our jobs, we've got great clothes, we live in a fantastic country, the country of the free. But we can go on and on, we've all got money in our pockets. Are we desiring these wonderful blessings from God, or are we those temporary blessings that I've just spoken of are at the top of our priority list a whole lot more? What is it? Let us take encouragement from the small introduction this morning. Let's read on these wonderful truths for the rest of the day. I'm sure it'll do you a soul good of who we really are in the world. Remember, we're the called of God. We are beloved in God the Father. We are kept for Jesus Christ. We need and ought to want multiplied mercy from God. We need and ought to want God's peace to be multiplied to us. We need and ought to want more of His love. God is. Yes, sir. Yes, sir.